Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. In recent years, one of the most successful Wall Street investors has been Bill Ackman. He's built Pershing Square into one of the most successful and listened to firms in all of Wall Street. But he's also been outspoken in a number of other areas, including philanthropy and politics. I had a chance to sit down with Bill in his office recently to talk about a variety of issues, including his latest bet on where the economy is going. There is a general consensus in the United States, in some circles, that we probably have avoided a recession for the near future. We're going to have a so-called soft landing. That's the consensus. Is that your view as well? Uh, I think it's really hard to predict. I do think the economy is weakening. Uh, we're seeing you know, evidence of that in some of our companies. You're seeing, uh, I have some concerns. Uh, you know, the, there's been a huge subsidy in terms of low interest rates. And companies, most companies, fix their uh, rates or their debt at you know, very low rates. And certainly real estate investors did the same. And that works until it doesn't work. And so I think we're, what's going to be interesting is to see what happens when people get, have to reprice their debt. And I think that can have sort of a cliff-like effect. And you're certainly seeing that uh, in real estate. Now, the markets are assuming, and the markets are not always right, but the markets are assuming that there's going to be a Fed discount cut sometime next year. Now, as we talk now, just about the end of November, um, it's not clear what the Fed will do. But uh, some people say that the Fed, if they were to cut interest rates next year, would help the Democrats and therefore be seen as very political. On the other hand, some people say the Fed can't wait till after the election because the economy might need a, a stimulus. So you have a view on what the Fed's likely to do? I think they're going to cut rates. And uh, you know, I think they're going to cut rates sooner than people expect. Uh, because you know, what's happening is the real rate of interest, ultimately, which is what impacts the economy, keeps increasing as inflation declines, right? So if the Fed keeps rates in the sort of middle fives uh, and inflation is you know, trending below 3% or uh, you know, that's a very high real rate of interest. And I think that is having a sort of retarding effect on the economy. And then, of course, again, uh, you know, many businesses and certainly many in individuals have the benefit of fixed rate debt. And uh, that fixed rate debt, certainly for companies and for, for commercial real estate, starts to roll off. So I think there's a, a risk of a hard landing if the Fed doesn't start cutting rates, you know, pretty soon. So, you know, I think the market expects sometime middle of next year. I think it's more likely probably as early as Q1. For the economy itself, do you think it really is going to make a difference if President Trump, is he, if he's the Republican nominee and gets elected, or if President Biden is the Democratic nominee, he's elected? You know, I do think uh, leadership matters enormously in everything from the economy uh, to geopolitics. And, uh, and I hope we're going to have a broader selection than Trump and Biden. I think Biden's done a lot of good things, uh, but I think uh, he, his legacy will not be a good one if he if he is the, the nominee. Uh, I do think the right thing for Biden to do is to step aside and to say he's not going to run and create the opportunity for some competition of alternative. Why, why do you think that? Well, I think that I think he's you know, past his prime in a in kind of meaningful way. I do think of it's a bit like being a CEO of a major company. It's a it's a it's a full time job and you need to be at your you know, you need to be strong. You need to be at your intellectual uh, best. And I don't think Biden is there. And I, I don't say that, uh, you know, 
with any derision of, of the president. I, I always respect the president and, and want whoever the president is to be successful, but I think he's clearly past his physical and, and cognitive peak. So you're a young, experienced investment professional. Uh, you ever thought about running for office yourself? I think, you know, if, if uh, the country wanted me at some point, uh, you know, I would be open to it. Um, you know, it's not, I think, it's not my time. Uh, I still have a lot of work to do and, you know, like to, if I ever would take that step, I would have to do, uh, I'd have to find myself at a time in life when I felt ready to take on that kind of responsibility. But I, it, it's, it's something where the country would have to ask me as opposed to uh, me put myself out there. Talk a moment about the background of uh, your yourself when you grew up and how you came to this business. So, where did you grow up? I grew up uh, in Chappaqua, New York. And did you say to your parents, "I want to be a hedge fund investor"? No. What uh, did you want to be? I wanted to be a businessman. Is probably what I told them at age ten or something like this. So I always had all kinds of entrepreneurial jobs and things. So, as a young boy, did you have any, you know, newspaper routes or things like that? Sure. So my, my dad did not believe in allowances. Uh, he said, look, if you want to make money, you have to work. Uh, and initially, he offered me some job opportunities. One early one was digging a you know, 50-foot-long you know, sort of ditch, <laughs> as I would describe it, to help deal with uh, water flow off of our property. And he offered to pay me you know, whatever it was, uh, a dollar an hour or something like this. Uh, and it was a good lesson in that you, I didn't want to get paid per hour. So the next time he gave me a project, I said, look, let me, I'll, let me price the project, and then it doesn't matter I, I, how quickly I get it done. I don't want to, pay to be paid on an hourly basis. So those are some of the early things. I wouldn't call them entrepreneurial, but they, they generated some, some money that I spending money. In terms of early life job experiences, uh, one of the most uh, valuable ones was actually when I was a Harvard student. Uh, there's something called the Let's Go Travel Guides, which were these uh, books that uh, students wrote about uh, budget travel. And a friend of mine, Whitney Tilson, and I, uh, we became a friend, uh, sold advertising for those guides all over the world. And so we had this, working out of the basement of a dorm room, we sold uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars of advertising in these books, and uh, we got a commission for doing so, and you know, I started. Uh, that's I got, got a fifteen percent promote for selling advertising, and that kind of okay. led to this hedge fund thing. So. And you did pretty well at Harvard. Yes. And when you graduated, you then did what? Uh, I graduated. I worked for my dad. Actually, uh, my grandfather and his brother started a firm that arranged financing for real estate developers and uh, what you might call commercial mortgage brokerage, um, and also raised equity financing for developers, sold property, and uh, I went to work there. Uh, I spent a little under two years there before going to business school. And you went to business school at Harvard? I did. And after you graduated from Harvard Business School, what did you do? That's when I started the hedge fund. And just, just said, okay, I'm at Harvard Business School, I don't need to have any more experience, I'm just <laughs> going to start a hedge fund? Uh, yes. Uh, I had started investing uh, in, in business school uh, with a classmate. Uh, actually, I went to Harvard with a plan about, I was going to learn about investing so I could someday be an investor. And there were no courses on investing at Harvard, but there were courses on finance and accounting and competitive strategy with Michael Porter. And uh, that was the backdrop for my education about investing. And I said, look, I'll open a brokerage account. 
I've made a little money in my uh, real estate commissions. And this will be another year of, if I lose it all, it's another year of Harvard Business School. If I learn something from it, maybe it's a career. And I kind of fell in love with investing. And it's something you can kind of figure out, actually, whether you're good at it or not, pretty you know, in a couple of year period of time. So you started Pershing Square after that period of time or right yeah. away? I started a firm called Gotham Partners with a partner named David Berkowitz, a classmate of mine at business school. We started in September of 92. Uh, and yes, we had no experience. Uh, and the, what was interesting is that none of the people who knew me in high school, like parents of my friends, had no interest because they thought of me as a kid. Um, but we raised money from mostly people who were themselves good investors. And I think they could see in us, you know, I guess, uh, some potential. All right. So you then transformed that into Pershing Square a year or two later? No. So Gotham was a, uh, a decade. Uh, and we did kind of public equity and then private equity and some venture capital. And, uh, and then uh, actually had a pretty challenging period that led to a decision to wind up Gotham. And then I launched uh, Pershing Square in January of 2004, uh, almost 20 years ago. You specialize in picking stocks. You weren't a macro investor then, where you were a stock picker? Yes, I would say we were kind of an activist stock picker. We would buy a pretty concentrated portfolio by large stakes in companies that we thought were great businesses or had great assets, but were undermanaged. And when you're an activist, of course, that word has uh, different meanings to different people, but you, would you call the CEO and say, we own 5%, we'd like to be on the board, we'd like to tell you how to run your company? Did you do that? And was that intimidating to do that? Uh, it's not exactly what we said, um, because again, we were young and inexperienced, um, but uh, it was more that we'd find a company, one of the early investments was uh, Wendy's, the hamburger chain, and Wendy's owned 100% of a chain called Tim Hortons in Canada. And Tim Hortons was a very profitable, successful, pure franchise of coffee and donut chain, principally in Canada. And you could fairly clearly see that business was worth about $5 billion, at least. It had about $450 million of operating income, probably worth meaningfully more than that. But you could buy all of Wendy's for $5 billion. So literally, the market was ascribing zero value to the Wendy's franchise. And our advice to the CEO is, well, just spin off Tim Hortons. And then focus on fixing Wendy's, but you can create enormous value in just separating the two companies. So it was a bit like investment banking where we didn't charge a fee. Uh, and actually back then, um, because we couldn't get a return phone call, because uh, we were a tiny little fund circa um, you know, 2004, we hired Blackstone, uh, which had an investment bank at the time. And we hired them to say, put together a fairness opinion, if you will, of what Wendy's would be worth if they spun off Tim Hortons. And then we wrote a letter to the board. We attached the Blackstone valuation, uh, which was nearly double where the stock was trading. And then six weeks later, magically, they spun off uh, Tim Hortons. Okay, so you did that with other companies. And being an activist, was it uh, consistent with your personality to do this? Because you got to be a tough guy to call up CEOs and say, hey, look, I got I got a better idea about how to run your company than you do. It was consistent with my personality. I've, I think I've always been some form of an activist, yes. And today, your focus is on the kind of activist investing, or you've stopped that? So, you know, when you're, no one knows who you are, uh, and you're trying to affect change in a company, you have to sort of be an activist. You have to use the media, the public platform, to, in some cases, shame a company into doing the right thing. Um, 20 years later, having had a meaningful number of successful engagements with companies, we don't really have to do that anymore. And so a lot of the stuff we've done recently uh, has been either buying into a company that already has great leadership and we're happy to share ideas, 
Uh, in some cases, uh, you know, there needs to be a, a change in leadership, but we're able to get things done without you know, sort of what you might call activism, more like engaged owners of businesses. You've done three extremely successful macro bets, mm -hmm. uh, one during the uh, period of the time of the uh, housing crisis, 07, 08, mm -hmm. and that one was extremely successful. You did one uh, again uh, during the COVID period of time, yes. which was, I think, maybe your best investment ever. You made a 94 times your money investment. Almost or 100, 100 times, actually. 100 times. Yeah, if you, yes. We bet that the credit spreads would right. widen as, because we'd, need a, we'd have to shut down the global economy. And uh, that's basically what happened. Right. So yeah. did people say, do you have any more deals like that when you did that one? Yes. And those are hard to find. Um, you know, the, the three black swan events in the last 20 years, we were, we've been able to be, make a big, big uh, profitable bets on. But these kind of black swan type things hopefully are, are, occur only every seven years, let's say. Well, interest rates went up and they started going up. You made another macro bet that yes. turned out to be pretty successful as well. Yes. So do you have any other macro bets you can mention now or nothing you can mention? We, we have another one on as we speak. Actually, we're, we're betting that the Federal Reserve is going to have to cut rates more quickly than people expect. That's the, the current macro bet that we have on. You're going to continue to be involved in this issue and try to push Harvard to do what you think they should be doing. Yes, I'm an activist. Uh, but my activism today is probably not in the corporate boardroom, uh, it's, it's on campus. Some hedge funds, they've delegated uh, the money decision making uh, to, uh, to many different people in the firm. You make all the final decisions yourself? The way it works is we have an eight-person investment team, and each idea is one that a two-person team will do a deep dive on. Uh, I will do less of a deep dive. Um, I'll read the public filings. I'll read conference call transcripts. I won't be the person that uh, you know, talks to former employees, that, that kind of thing. And then we talk about every idea as a team. And ultimately, the team, collectively, we don't do things generally uh, that you know, we, we don't have kind of collective buy-in on. At the end of the day, I do retain the ultimate veto, uh, yay or nay, uh, and the ultimate decision on um, sizing. Now, one big change I made in the last you know, couple of years, I appointed a CIO, a very talented guy named Ryan Israel, who's been with the firm for about 14 years. And uh, Ryan is exceptional, uh, and he's taken a real leadership role among that eight-person uh, you know, team. Uh, but it, it, you know, we t I use the word team often here because that's how this place operates. What type of people would get a job here? You're looking for people who are really smart, good academic credentials, driven. What is it that you look for when you're interviewing people? It depends on what role, uh, but people on the investment team, uh, generally, yes, they've uh, graduated uh, top of their class at Wharton. Uh, they've always been interested in business and investing. They went to work at a Apollo, a KKR, a Carlisle. Uh, we like people that, that get private equity uh, experience. We think that's the best background for what we do. We're really private equity investors investing in the public markets. Um, and the sort of temperament of a typical private equity person fits well here. Uh, we only own really eight companies. Uh, they don't change that often. Um, so this is not a place where a typical hedge fund firm you know, people are cycling through, you know, the idea of the week, <laughs> the idea of the month. 
Here we may do one new idea a year. Now, another area that investors have been very interested in lately is artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Are you investing in things relating to artificial intelligence? You know, the most direct investment we have in AI, I would say, is Google uh, or Alphabet. Uh, which, you know, has You're a, a big shareholder of Alphabet. We're a small shareholder of Alphabet because it's a massive company. We've got a you know, large investment, uh, approaching $2 billion investment uh, in the business. Um, and actually, it was, it, was the, it was AI that created the opportunity for us to buy Google at an attractive price. You know, basically, Microsoft uh, and OpenAI had a very powerful demonstration of, uh, and a launch of a new product. And then Google's kind of launch or it was a, a bit of a disaster. Stock got crushed on the basis of, you know, fear that Google was way behind in AI and and their you know, their advertising franchise more than covered the value of the company and you got whatever they were doing in AI, if you will, for free. And our view based on work we had done is that actually Google was sort of neck and neck, if not ahead of open AI in terms of their their business progress. So one of the pluses some people would say of being a successful investor is you do make a fair amount of money and then you have the opportunity to be a philanthropist. So you were one of the early signers of the Giving Pledge. Mm -hmm. uh, why did you do that? Why did you commit to give away half of your net worth? Well, I think you commit to give away half or more. That was kind of my plan anyway. And then, you know, one day, you know, Warren Buffett calls up and says, Bill, you know, I want you to sign the Giving Pledge. <laughs> so um, the, I think it's a, uh, you know, I've learned a lot about philanthropy. Uh, I started the Pershing Square Foundation uh, actually, I think, 17 years ago. Um, my personal business plan was always to be super successful and then take the resources I don't need and then redeploy them in, in a way that, that I thought was best for society. Um, I do think uh, that philanthropy is often not the best way to solve problems. I do think that capitalism and for-profit business models are generally the best way to solve problems. But there are still problems, societal ones, that uh, can't be solved in the traditional capital markets. There's sort of a gap. Um, and so, you know, those are the areas that we tend to focus on. One of the institutions you've been very philanthropic with is your alma mater, Harvard. But recently, you've been very uh, public about your criticism of the way Harvard handled the uh, events of October 7th and their aftermath. Could you talk about that now? The first reaction of a group of 34 Harvard student clubs on the morning after uh, October 7th was to put out a statement saying that Israel was 100% responsible uh, for the acts of Hamas. And uh, my view on that uh, was, you know, that's ridiculous. And that's more than ridiculous, I would say. And, you know, these students need to have some, you know, judgment and, and perspective. You can come out and say, look, uh, I'm very unhappy about Israel's uh, how, treatment of Palestinians in the West Bank. Or you can say, uh, you know, uh, we can talk about uh, the Gaza Strip. Um, but you can't support terrorists and particularly terrorists that rape and pillage and you know murder and burn and take hostages. And so my first point there was uh, not so much directed at Harvard, but you know, love to know. I got a, actually a, a text from a CEO in my industry. He's like, Bill, you know, you're, you know the people at Harvard. I'd like to know who the students are behind these clubs so I make sure I don't inadvertently hire them. And so I tweeted out that uh, sort of made that point and uh, caused a bit of a firestorm, and I got a lot of pushback. Uh, oh, why are you picking on students? And I said, look, you can't hide behind a corporate entity if you're gonna support terrorism. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a major decision. So that was sort of my first uh, initiative, if you will, at Harvard. And then, you know, there were protests on campus, um, and the protests weren't, uh, the protests were supportive of terrorism 
and uh, supportive of things like, you know, when you have a group of students shouting intifada, intifada, uh, you know, let's free Palestine and from the river to the sea, the meaning of intifada means to kill Jews. When I raised this issue, Harvard said, well, we have a commitment to free speech and that's why we have to allow this. Well, there's certain speech that is certainly permissible under the First Amendment. And then there's certain speech uh, that I would say is undesirable on a campus. Have you said you're not going to donate to Harvard anymore? Or have you said I'm not going to hire people from these Harvard students anymore or people like those people? No. Uh, well, one, we're not going to hire anyone that supports terrorism at Pershing Square. Um, I haven't made any statements about, um, you know, economic support for Harvard. I want Harvard to do the right thing. I don't want to threaten uh, one way or another. That's not my kind of approach. But I do think Harvard needs to do a deep examination of, you know, one, there's been a meaningful rise in anti-Semitic incidents on campus and uh, universities uh, done very little. Uh, you know, the reaction was, let's, let's form a task force. Uh, and I think, uh, again, had this been another ethnic group um, uh, that uh, where these kind of activity took place, Harvard would be suspending the people involved, not uh, just allowing it so to So you're going to continue to be involved in this issue and try to push Harvard to do what you think they should be doing? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I wrote a pretty thoughtful letter uh, that was, you know, I think 25 million people saw it on Twitter. Uh, and uh, remarkably, I, I did not get a response, which to me uh, is a very, very bad uh, um, and weak uh, approach. Literally no response, no acknowledgement, no, dear Bill, I hear what you're saying, but um, nothing. So uh, yes, I'm an activist, uh, but my activism today is probably not in the corporate boardroom. Uh, it's, it's on campus. And, uh, and this is not just a Harvard problem. Uh, you know, there's, and it's an NYU problem. It's a University of Pennsylvania problem. Uh, it, you know, the, the more I examine the issue, the more woke, the more left-leaning the institution, the more anti-Semitism, uh, which is a, a very unfortunate thing. You built Pershing from nothing to what it is today, a very successful hedge fund. What makes you most proud that having done that from the start or other things you've done in your philanthropic life, what are you most proud of having achieved in your life so far? So, uh, you know, a number of things. I, I, I love having a company where I believe that pretty much everyone here is excited to come into work every day. Uh, I think we've made a kind of meaningful contribution uh, to you know, the capitalist system and the functioning of how, you know, I think the probably the most significant impact we've had, we were sort of an early activist. Um, and as you probably know, the nature of boardrooms, you know, 20 years ago is meaningfully different uh, today. And a big part of that is the rise of shareholder activism. And I think we played an important role there. I think that's led to the U.S. capital markets uh, and the U.S. stock market being one of the best performing uh, markets in the world, and that has a huge impact on people's pensions, on people's savings, on people's livelihood, on U.S. competitiveness, on our uh, national security. And so, you know, I think, you know, the good news about my day job is, you know, it's, it's fun, it's profitable, um, it benefits our investors, but it also benefits kind of the market generally. So I, I think that's an important and good contribution. You know, philanthropically, uh, we have invested, you know, 600-odd million dollars in a wide range of initiatives and, you know, a number of those, uh, you know, it's, it's a bit like investing. You have, hopefully you have a few uh, Googles <laughs> and uh, we have a couple of those, uh, a number of those philanthropically. Um, and I do feel like we've invested money uh, that we, on which society has earned. 
an attractive return. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.